Hi, everyone, and welcome back to one part of the Faculty of Horror. Uh, it's just me, Alex West, here today, and we wanted to do some bonus content. And we thought, what better way to uh, kick the summer off than with a commentary about I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, and for those of you who don't know, on our Patreon, Andrea and I have done a few commentaries already. So if you like this format, please go check that out. Um, but for this, for our main feed, it's just me. Um, also, I'm not sure I could have enticed Andrea to talk for the hour and 30 minutes of the runtime of I Know What You Did Last Summer, but... I love this movie. I I think it's really fun and pretty well made. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in it. So let's dive in. Um, the film obviously has not started yet. I'm just going to warm you up. Um, but there's, oh my gosh, this film. We're going to get into it with this film. And then if you guys really like it, uh, do let us know, because then maybe we can convince Andrea to do an episode on it. I'm kidding. She would probably want to do an episode on this if we uh, asked nicely enough anyway. But we thought for something quick, we wanted to do something, you know, in time for the holiday that is coming up that this film centers around. So um, I thought it'd be easy for me to just jump on and give it a shot. And uh, I'm recording at home. So that's fun. Um, yeah. Okay. So I've got a nice black screen here. I'm going to make this full screen now. Uh, there we go. Okay, so um, please, if you're watching along with me, um, mute your setup, because uh, I will have the audio on from the film, so you kind of be able to hear it a little bit. So it's the easiest way to do it. Or you can be like me and just listen to this commentary without watching the film. I do that with other podcasts that do that. So it's, it's cool. I get it. Okay, so I'm going to hit play in three, two, one. Okay, so we are up with the Columbia Pictures screen. Um, now, I think kind of one of the first things to address about this film is that it is, uh, it was released shortly after Scream, and Scream came out December 1996. This came out, I think, around Dece um, the summer in 1997, and uh, Scream was so big, and so uh, Columbia Pictures used on a lot of promotional material from um, the mind behind Scream, various kind of marketing and promotional materials like that. However, Miramax, which owned Dimensioned, which uh, put out Screen and was hiring and kind of employing Kevin Williamson, uh, put a stop to that. They were like, no, you can't do that. So um, there was all this ad material that had to be pulled down very quickly. And if you're wondering why Kevin Williamson had two films that feel so closely related in many ways, ah, oh, here we go, it's the 90s, it's the late 90s, I feel alive. Ah, oh, listen to that fucking drum. Uh, it's so angsty. You got Sarah, who's next? Ryan, Freddy is last, you know, good guys finish last, do they? No. Um... But back to what I was saying. So if you were wondering why Kevin Williamson had two films uh, from two different um, companies kind of come out very quickly uh, in succession, it's, it's a great question. Um, so while Williamson was shopping around Scream in, you know, the mid 90s and before it got picked up by Miramax, um, there was a lot of 
back and forth. It was almost picked up by a few different companies. And um, people didn't really know what to do with it until Dimension kind of saw the potential and, you know, went ahead with it. Uh, but in the meantime, several friends of Williamson's uh, gave him the book. And this is based on a book by Lois Duncan. And... Um, uh, so he wrote this script, and we'll talk about the ways that Williamson changed uh, the this the story for the film from the book, uh, because it is pretty interesting. And um, yeah, so it was kind of like when Scream hit and was becoming a thing, this was also in development and becoming a thing. Uh, so it's a little bit of kismet, a little bit of luck, but there's also, you know, business behind it um and i think people got very excited when scream was such a big hit here we go screenplay by kevin williamson um and directed by jim gillespie uh who went on to do some other stuff but we could talk about that later we have like what do we have we have an hour and 40 minutes together my friends this is gonna be fun um and if you're wondering why i'm kind of pulling all this stuff out out of the top of my head, seemingly, it's because I did write a book on the subject. Um, oh, we have an angsty man. What is this? Who is this? What's happening? Ooh. But I did actually write a book uh, kind of around this cycle um, of films, and it's called The 1990s Teen Horror Cycle. Final Girls and a New Hollywood Formula came out a few years ago. Um, and I'm always down to talk about these movies because I feel like they don't get enough love. Um, and one of the reasons why it feels really good to talk about this film now is, um, you know, I'm recording this in June 2020. We are in the midst of a pandemic. We are in the midst of um, a revival of the civil rights movement, which is long overdue. And here we go. Fireworks. This film centers around Independence Day or July 4th in the States, which is um, a holiday that kind of originated in 1826 with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, oh God, the Croker Festival. We're going to have fun, guys. Um, and it was, you know, when America separated from uh, England, it was no longer a colony. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Oh, the beauty queens. Okay. Um, uh, and, you know, that holiday is really only about emancipation from a certain kind of type of person in the U.S., namely white people, white people who were so tired of being a British colony. Uh, don't mind that they stole the land from uh, the indigenous First Nations communities and people who you know been there forever um, and don't mind all the slaves they brought over um, and then a lot of the conversation this year has been around the holiday of, Ju of Juneteenth which is um, on June 19th and uh, in 1865 in Texas that's when the last slaves were freed and emancipated so that's when it, a lot of people kind of start to think about a true freedom for the United States, uh, whereas the July 4th Independence Day holiday only celebrates a very specific kind of freedom and emancipation. So I think that's important to keep in mind. And I think July 4th is a bit of a strange holiday. So if you don't want to celebrate um, 
the U.S.'s freedom from England while still enslaving a lot of its people that were residing within its borders. Uh, we can look at it as the uh, fisherman's holiday, <laughs> the fisherman who took his vengeance against beauty queens, against people with bangs, against sweater-wearing men. Um, and here we have, so here we have our foursome. We have uh, Helen, who is our beauty queen, played by Sarah Michelle Geller. Um, she was just, uh, I think Buffy was, you know, a year, a year on TV around now. Maybe just kind of wrapped that first half season it did. Um, and then we've got uh, Julie, uh, who's played by Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, she was kind of coming off Party of Five and getting some of that notoriety. Um, and of course, in Scream, because it's hard to kind of talk about those two things separately. Uh, Scream also featured Nev Campbell, not only a Canadian, but she was also in Party of Five. Um, you have Ryan Felipe. Oh, here are the two friends. Um, and then Freddie Prince Jr., two other up-and-coming hunky actors who were um, going to become even more popular in the coming years. But uh, I believe it was really these two here, um, uh, Jennifer and Jennifer and Sarah, who are the biggest stars. And here we have Helen interacting with her uh, older sister, who is um, seemingly much more grounded and about running a business rather than Helen, who just wants to be an actress and a star and all of that. Oh. Oh, he just wants to take her out. And I think a lot of what's interesting about this film, and, and this film is is a slasher, um, 100%. It is, ugh, there he is. There are those blonde curls. Um, this film is so, it is a slasher, but it is a kind of interesting one. And this is what I think the 90s teen horror films, you know, from Scream onward, and there are a few before it, and again, I talk about this in the book, um, that really complicate the notion of hero and villain. Um, you know, it's not a Freddy Krueger, it's not a Michael Myers. Often, the teenage characters at the center of these films are the kind of harbingers of their own doom. Um, and we're going to talk about how these four all play into their kind of mental and social demise because I think these cycles of films whether you care for them or not really delve into um, a very kind of 90s quality of you know the the media um, which was becoming the 24-hour news cycle we were just becoming aware of that and used to it um, you know fame all of those kinds of things like before social media this is again this is the era I grew up in so I feel quite indebted to it but um you know, it's it's uh, it was a new way of being a teenager, and I think these films are often trying to show that struggle. And you have screenwriters such as Williamson, who are obviously older than a teen um, at the time of writing this, and we're you know observing the things around them, and you know grew up loving those eighty slashers, and we're kind of saying like, okay, yeah, evil over there is good, but what if there is something evil that we are doing? And is much more intrinsic and internal to this American way of life. And I think this film is uh, a kind of very interesting examination of um, 
the uh, the American way of life, especially for teens, especially for uh, the privileged teens, as we will continue to talk about. So here we're talking about urban legends. They're sitting around the beach. The bloody hook in the car door. Of course, this would be more explored in the film Urban Legend, which would come out the following year. Bullshit ghost story. It's not. And I always love thinking that, like, Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar are still married. They got married, I guess, in the early 2000s. They're still together. They have some kids. It's pretty cool. Um, so <laughs> he's saying this with such earnestness. Ray or Freddie Prince Jr. is talking about, you know, American folklore, urban legend, and the inciting incident. And um, there's a really great book uh, out there called The Vanishing Hitchhiker, which kind of delves into a lot of the sociology and theory behind this um, that I pull from in the book. But um, here we're gonna we're about to see the inciting incident. We are about to see that origin. And I, I've written a bit about um, in, in my book about this sequence in particular because I find it very interesting. Here we have um, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller talking to her boyfriend, uh, played by Ryan Felipe, in this about her fantasy of like, we're going to go off to the Caymans, we're going to get pregnant, or I will get pregnant, meaning Sarah Michelle Geller, uh, right before you head off to rehab. And I always thought there was something a bit sad, a bit self-aware, a bit sarcastic about all this. And um, I don't, uh, I don't hate it at all. I just find it interesting that the kind of dreams are not of the white picket fence. It's of a certain amount of fame, a certain amount of stature that all kind of coincides with like a first rehab stint. Again, there is a sense that the media saturation of, um, you know, like Icarus flying too close to the sun, the people that are becoming involved and becoming heroes right now to these kids are people who attain a lot of notoriety a lot of fame, a lot of wealth, but also it also comes at a cost. There is always a cost. You always have to pay up at some point. Oh, oh and here we have the more soulful duo, Julie and Ray. Oh, Julie, you sure? See, consent is sexy. I mean, I think this was, um, oh, I want to say this was a PG-13. Um, ideally, you'd be giving consent um, and asking for consent the whole way through, but I like that they showed this. That's cool. Um, beach sex is, um, I haven't done it, but it seems uncomfortable without a blanket? I don't know. Um... <laughs> So, again, here there's a nice kind of sense of responsibility. Uh, again, this is minor about what we're about to face. Um, them trying to take the keys right away from Ryan Phillippe. Uh, Julie's cardigan is off, so you know she got some. But Ray hasn't been drinking, so he can drive. It's not going to help the situation momentarily, but, you know, at least they're trying. Oh, God. I got that weird 
starey thing going on. Here, hubris, hubris. So we currently have these four people, these four beautiful, um, you know, privileged white kids um, who may not be the worst people in the world, but what they're about to do is going to be very telling. Um, oh, they've hit something. What is it? Yes, he got hit in the face by a body. Yep, you can't fuck with daddy's money or his car or his insurance, apparently. Isn't that why you have insurance? I'm not a car owner, but... Again. Uh-oh. <gasps> a boot! That's how we say about in Canada. And so here's a moment. You've got all these characters who've talked about their plans. We had Ray and Julie talking about, um, you know, a kind of post-high school education, um, some ideas of what they wanted to do. Of course, Helen wants to go off and be a superstar. Uh, Ryan Felipe is, you know, off to become a sports hero. Oh, and then here we see the body. Um, and... It's that moment that derails all of these dreams. And they're all kind of now, it's that, you know, penny drop moment of, it's, it's very hard to go on. Um, it's not impossible, but if it's an accident, it can be very hard. And what are people going to think? And who owns the car? And um, who was drinking and who wasn't drinking? And it's very, you know, it's a very scary thing. See, she's trying to run away. You can't run away from this, but what are we going to do? I mean, it's pretty adorable that these white kids are like, oh, if we call the police, we're fucked. I mean, I'd like to say there's something called a breathalyzer that if they called right away... But who knows? Again. Uh, calling the police. Again. That white privilege. So. So here. And, and I think that's kind of where we see um, some of the tension arise because. Um, 
<laughs> the rationalization. Sorry, it's great. But um, ultimately, you have these kids who would normally go to the police and the police would fix it because they would explain our sober friend was driving. We didn't see this person and, you know, we didn't do anything wrong and it was an accident. And I think this has been, you know, part of uh, a myth that has been perpetuated, especially through white culture, that the police are there to help and that you can call them and they will help. And uh, it's certainly something I have believed. And it's again, it's a big privilege and what these characters have here. Um, I think without the film directly commenting on it, but now watching it through various lenses, if you're kind of aware and breathing of what's going on right now, how um, strange this is, but also how it's so white. And I think um if you can kind of look at it through that lens of like this white mentality, which is so predominant in culture. I think this one is, this is an interesting example because it's complicated because yes, they could go to the cops, but also they don't want to have to deal with any potential repercussions, even though we know what we've seen is it was an accident. They didn't mean to, it was, you know, Ryan Felipe dropped the bottle uh, and they didn't see the guy. It was it was truly an accident. And so now it's kind of complicating this notion of privilege, of responsibility, and of the future and what happens in the future and what do you give up when you tell the truth? Um, and what do you give up when you tell a lie? So again, it, it's a very simple, fun teen slasher, but it, it brings up some different things. Oh, and here we go. Yeah, Barry was drinking too much. Oh, yes, the pissing contest over Julie James. This is the defining moment. What are they going to do? So here we learn that they've made the decision that they are going to dump the body and act like it never happened.
And this is really the kind of origin of the urban legend right here. Um, the uh, This inciting incident of these kids making the decision to A, skirt the law, again, through their privilege, um, it, which is interesting because as I was mentioning before, they kind of had that double privilege. They could have called the cops and seen, you know, with minimal fear, like the cops aren't going to shoot them right away. Um, but they also feel like they can get away with this and that they deserve to get away with this. They're, oh no, her crown! Um, and that they deserve to get away with this because, you know, they are young, they are beautiful, they are relatively intelligent, and they have their whole futures ahead of them. This uh, kind of class conversation is beginning here and it's also the beginning of this urban legend where um, these kids have made this decision to skirt the societal rules of good and you know wrong being good or evil or telling what what is right and what is wrong and making a choice and a choice that will begin to affect them and will haunt them and will pursue them um Something interesting if you want to kind of keep going into this uh, <laughs> um, cinematic universe of uh, <laughs> I Know What You Did Last Summer. Obviously, there is I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, which is a very fun follow up to this. Um, I personally enjoy it very much. Oh, oh, Barry's yelling at them. Secrets make you sick, Julie. He seems great, Barry. So nice, so respectful, just threatening enough. Um, but as I was saying in um, the cinematic universe, uh, if you get onto the third film, I'll always know what you did last summer, where none of these characters reappear again. Um, I think Jennifer Love Hewitt was supposed to have a cameo, but she was uh, shooting Ghost Whisperer. Um, but the fisherman, as we're about to you know, eventually meet him in a little bit, has become a kind of uh, fully realized urban legend figure. He is uh, doling out... Um, a brutal justice and in many ways it kind of becomes the boogeyman that a Freddy Krueger or a Michael Myers um, would have become. Oh, and here we have one year later at a super cool college. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so it, it, it's kind of interesting because these films are often trying to do something a bit different um, and they do. Oh, I love this part. Wait, I'm just going to watch this for one second. Jump scare. I love that turnaround by Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, it just makes me laugh. It's so dramatic and so she's supposed to look so rough. We're supposed to see the weight that uh, this secret has kind of taken of her. Yep, she's got dark circles and lifeless hair. Um, so while Julie's returning home, um, 
we can talk a little bit more about uh, the original book by Lois Duncan. And it was released in uh, 1973. And it kind of follows a similar pattern where these four friends um, cover up, you know, a murder of um, uh, someone who they hit with their car. Uh, however, um, there's not nearly as much death. There's no death. Um, but... Uh, and actually, all the characters are quite a bit more successful. So, like, Helen, when it revisits her about a year later, she's actually had, you know, some success. Not, you know, she's not a huge movie star, but she's doing pretty well. Um, and similar with the other characters, it's not quite as bad. And there's no fisherman in the film, or sorry, in the book. There's no fisherman in the book. There is um, a character who is, you know, stalking all the various, uh, you know, people who contributed to the accident but uh he kind of pops up all over the place and uh kevin williamson has you know spoken about on record um reading the book enjoying the book and taking the premise of it however it would be incredibly hard uh in a film to have the same character pop up you know in three different relationships to three different people let's say without some kind of silly disguise so for a film he felt he really had to kind of transform it into this uh fearsome figure of the fisherman and um and that it did kind of lend itself to a slasher narrative. So he rejigged the mystery a bit. He, he you know, redid it um, to kind of take the premise, but, uh, you know, let it live within a kind of slasher world. Uh, and I think that's smart. I, I think it's fun. And they actually, if you read the book, it's a pretty fun, easy read. Again, it's, it's uh, young adult fiction, but uh, they actually employ a few of the narrative points from the novel into the second film as well, uh, which I thought was actually pretty smart and keeps it kind of interesting and also uh, lends itself a bit to the kind of slasher narrative, um, the one that came before this cycle and the one that is within this cycle of the family returning to punish. This is something you'd see throughout the Scream sequels. Uh-oh. Remember getting mail? I love getting mail. I know what you did last summer. I love the exclamation point. It's like the difference between when I write a work email and I'm like, hi, exclamation point, or like, hi, comma, or hi, period. Shut up, mom. So here we have this kind of, again, it's, it's that, I don't, I don't want to say it's a dichotomy, but they, they initially did not tell an authority figure in the police. And now she feels, Julie feels like, oh God, she's just staring at it. It's not going to change, Julie. Um, she feels like she cannot uh, tell her mother um, because, you know, she didn't tell in the beginning. She swore to secrecy and now things are scary. Ooh. Yes, close your window. I would close my window too if I had a threatening note. Uh, 
Um, but yeah, so so Lois Duncan uh, went on record. There was an interview with her in an edition of um, I know what you did last summer that uh, I was reading. Oh, this is sweet '90s jam. Um, it sounds like every '90s song, but I can't place it. Anyway, so uh, so they re-released um, several editions of I Know What You Did Last Summer, especially following the release of this film, because there's, you know, renewed interest. Um, and Lois Duncan it, has gone on record saying she was quite horrified by um, this film and the notion of this film, that the characters are being... Um, you know, brutally murdered and their heads are being lopped off. And she, you know, uses all this language, seemingly citing examples from the film, um, which don't actually occur. But, you know, you get her point. Um, and I always thought it was funny. I included this quote in my book. And, you know, fair enough. Every author thinks their, you know, piece of work is something really special and you work so hard on it and you love it. Um, but she calls it, she says something to the effect of, um, she was like, I'm so upset to see what they did to my little masterpiece. And, like, to be fair, it's a really fun book, but, um, you know, masterpiece is maybe a strong word, but I feel her and, and she's since passed away, but I think it's pretty cool even if um, the book and the movie are quite different um, that there's still, you know, it was still being republished and reissued with updated editions and things like that so um, I'm always a fan of that. And here we're seeing Helen again. Oh, that frosted nail polish and the thumb ring and, and sorry, sometimes I do get sucked into these films um, because of the 90s style. Um, again, I would have been, so this is 97, I would have been about 12, almost 13. I turned 13 in September in 1997. Um, all right, do I turn 12? No, I turned 12. So I was 11 and 12 when this came out. Um, and I'm, I think I probably rented it. And uh, again, this is like, these are teen, oh my God, look at that armband. And that wig. Uh, okay, anyway. Um, so as I was watching this when I was 11 or 12, like a preteen, uh, this felt very much like what I thought being a teenager should be like. And then when I was actually a teen and graduated high school, or even then, like I've never actually felt as adult as these characters feel in this film. See, you know, and this is the thing. Like, I feel like Barry did a lot of shit last summer, so he's probably got, like, eight people sending him vaguely threatening messages. Yeah. And here we have, like, uh, the kind of first instance, or, well, you know, we, we've seen Julie's mom before this, but we're going to have a few more instances in this film of the absentee parents. And, um, you know, particularly for Barry and Helen there, you just saw seemingly his mom who's on the phone, not paying attention, even though he just told, um, you know, a seemingly good friend of his or once good friend of his to shut the hell up and screamed at her at, on his deck.
And of course, they're going to try to uh, insinuate Max, uh, played by um, Johnny Galecki, uh, who's, I think it was Roseanne, and then he was on The Big Bang Theory. So, <laughs> always fun seeing him pop up. And again, um, we're going to kind of introduce some of the themes of class uh, within this film and within this world. Um, so you have someone like Barry, who's obviously from a very rich family. We know this from his car, also about his attitude, the house we just saw. There's a lot of things coding him. And, you know, they talk about how rich he is, but even just visually he's coded as being quite um, wealthy. Uh, and then here we have, you know, the Max character um, working a kind of lower working class job, seemingly the the uh, working the oh god, uh, working the docks, uh, something that is seen as again very working class, and it's um, you know there's nothing wrong with working a working class job. You know, it's probably a lot more fucking steady, ideally in a perfect world, than it would be, you know, making stupid amounts of money off the stock market and people's misery. Uh oh. And here we have Ray. Again, him and Julie broke up, as they mentioned, but... Oh, God, look at his hair. It's huge. There's gel going everywhere. So, Ray is also working the docks. Again, uh, coding him as more working class than Barry, who is, you know, running around with his privilege, threatening people, doesn't really give a shit about anyone but himself and not involving himself in anything, really, and keeping himself safe. Do you guys remember when Freddie Prince Jr. had his own sitcom? I think it was just called Freddie. It lasted for like a season? Anyway, it was all very early 2000s, I believe. Mid-2000s. Um, and again, here, when we talk about characters working, you've got Ray working. We saw Helen working earlier in her parents' uh, store, the Chivers kind of general, you know, department kind of store, uh, and her being really shit at it. Um, and the two people who we don't really see working are Barry and Julie. Uh, you know, Julie kind of excising the, you know, I'm in university, that's my job. Um, she never seems to really get a job in the summer. Obviously, she's busy dealing with the fishermen, but July 4th is at the beginning of the summer. I hope she's found gainful employment um, after the initial trauma, you know? Oh, yep, yeah, running away. <laughs> Uh-oh. And then I think through this setting up of the kind of, especially Barry uh, looking down on anyone working at, you know, the docks and stuff like this, coding it, the working class stuff, the fact that the killer is 
the fisherman. Uh, he's, you know, he's got the rain slicker. He's got that hook that we've been, you know, uh, the the film has been pointing to. Oh no, where did it go? Um, the um, it, it is very much a kind of lower class wreaking havoc and vengeance against the upper class and against privilege things like that, um, which I always find is a nice little, like, coded thing that's interwoven through it. Um, and, and I'm learning all kinds of things, you know, when you watch it, uh, like, there's a lot of steam in, uh, in, in, in fish stuff. Um, I always thought it was really interesting as well, because um, uh, the, the use of the fisherman, uh, you know, and the his um, hook that he has, that, that hand hook that he uses throughout the uh, film um, to kill people and throughout the rest of the films, in fact. Uh, and it always harkens back in my mind to um, the line at the beginning of Scream where Ghostface says to Casey, played by Drew Barrymore, I'm going to gut you like a fish. And here we have someone actually doing that. So that's fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, work out that impotent male rage, Barry. No. Oh. So, um, I know that uh, with the pandemic and everything going on, there's a lot of discussion right now of like people saying on Twitter. Um, or I've certainly seen on Twitter, like, uh, I will never doubt another horror screenwriter again when they have a character walk into a room going, who's there? What's going on? Uh, all the stuff that people would be like, no, shut up, don't go in there. But I've actually felt that uh, long before this. So um, when I was living at um, my old place, uh, which was a really nice house that I shared with a few roommates, um, and it was a great place, I came home one day from work and we, again, very privileged. We lived in a safe um, residential area. We didn't really have to worry about stuff, but we always obviously kept our doors locked just to be safe. And, you know, we, I had three roommates plus myself, so four people living there. There's people coming and going. So you just want to, you know, respect everyone as much as possible. And anyway, so I came home from work one day. I think one of my roommates I knew was out of town. So it was two of my roommates uh, who were still around that week. And they were a couple. Um, and uh, I got home and the door was wide open. And like the front door and then the interior door into the, to uh, our part of the house. And um, I... I remember just going in and, and, you know, thinking like, oh, did one of my roommates like, you know, come in and just forgot to close the door or it blew open or something like that. And I walk around this house fucking going, hello, hello, Joanne, Adam, doing this for a good 10 minutes. At one point I did get a knife and just kind of kept it with me, just assuming they were home something and then I, I i checked all over the house nothing was missing no one was there um and i uh i eventually got a hold of my roommate and just said to her i was like hey is everything okay the door is wide open she was like oh my gosh adam and i went out for the day and i swear i thought i locked it but maybe i closed it too fast and didn't lock you know one of those things total honest accident run barry run good thing you're an athlete um and, and so i've always kind of thought this was probably four years ago now 
four or five years ago. Uh, and ever since then, I've been like, God, I'm that fucking idiot. And when you're watching a horror movie, you just say like, oh my God, stay outside, call the cops. And I was just going like, hello, hello. But again, uh, not every moment of life is a horror movie. Hopefully not anyway for you. Um, our dear listeners and so it wasn't for me but uh i definitely had like a moment of being like what the fuck am i doing but ah! no don't help him don't help his privileged idiot ass um and so this is uh obviously the fisherman has come for barry what does he want he wants to show you his hook Again, this is, you know, definitely a threatening move on the, you know, by the hands of the fishermen. And um, as we've kind of talked about Barry's big thing, while well, he comes from a very wealthy family, his thing is also that he's an athlete. And the fisherman has taken that away from him now, seemingly beating him up or just certainly running him over with the car. Um, And again, to this point of the dialogue we've just seen, this is a fishing village. Ray has a slicker, but so does a million other people. Uh, so we're going to encounter a lot of red herrings in this film about who who it is, um, why they have different motives. Again, this kind of plays nicely on stuff that was happening within Scream, whereas everyone's a suspect. And I think this kind of nicely marries and bridges um, a horror film and a thriller and keeps people guessing and it generates a lot of hype. And I think that's often what's forgotten sometimes when we talk about these films, particularly with Scream, is that after um, the first one, where um, you know, the there there's so many red herrings in that film and that kind of became a trademark of them. Um, so they, there was always reports about like multiple endings, multiple scripts, um, different people being the killer, and then them just deciding um you know, in the editing room or just having decoys out there um, so that they could release it. And it's like, who is the killer? Who was doing all of this? And yeah. No, can't be maxed. He's dead. You want to get married? No. Oh, accessing the library online.
So here it's the kind of cycle of violence and the cycle of accidents that we are uncovering. So the guy who they killed um, at the beginning of this film uh, was actually involved in the death of a girl. Again, another accident. Um, And that's who we saw at the beginning of the film. He was sitting on the cliffs and, you know, wondering what the fuck is going on and feeling guilt and remorse and pain over what he caused. And now we're perpetuating that cycle once again. Um, And seemingly he, you know, didn't escape the kind of by the privilege that um, these kids have. But he was forced to reckon with it and it destroyed him and um, destroyed him in a way that uh, we'll find out more about, but also we know because seeing him at the beginning of the film indicates that he was not feeling so hot about life choices and things that have happened. Um, <laughs> God, remember when like hero-like figures smoked in films? Um, so again, as I was talking about the different class system in this film, um, everything right now is in the film is coding them as you know going to see a very uh, lower class working family, um, you know, via the mailbox, the rundown home, um, the the fear that these two characters are going to feel, uh, they feel uncomfortable. All of these things are kind of leading us up to. Um, a bit of a like Texas Chainsaw vibe, but I think the film tries to do, um, you know, something vaguely progressive and just show that these are people and they're not to be feared necessarily. Um, but they are just people living their lives. Ah, and hey, sh- hi. So this would have come out the year before uh, she was in Gus Van Sant's Psycho as Marion Crane, and you know she'd done uh, also like Lost World. Was it Lost World Jurassic Park? No, I think I have that wrong. It was, it, but she was starting to uh, come up in other major films. Um, she was doing indie film before this, so this is kind of a nice, interesting cameo do we want to say maybe let's call it a cameo uh, from this day and age see rain slickers in every home small fishing village i love that um yeah miss egan um she's david's sister i believe and um she just seems like she's friendly enough, but just also seems kind of put out that they're here, which I I think I would feel as well. Your name, Egan. Sounds very familiar. Did you And uh, so while she, this was kind of initially coded as a, you know, what uh, Carol, Claire, Carol Clover would call a terrible place in her definition of the slasher film. Um, and again, where I think for me, I certainly was seeing callbacks to like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of house and the butchering and all of this stuff. Uh, Missy is actually quite a nice character. She's 
slightly odd if you want to say that. I wouldn't. But um, she's nice and she's welcoming and she's helpful. And I think this scene really serves to pinpoint the kind of guilt and remorse that they should be feeling for, you know, even though it's an accident that they've taken a life and that there's uh, parts of it that are very unresolved, especially for the family and the people who are left behind by this death, uh, by David's death that we now know. Uh oh. Absolutely not a fake name, Billy Blue. Yes, Julie, it's like you took an actual life of a human who has, you know, people who care about him. Yes, you are. You are that powerful. Ah! That is also how I remind people that they've forgotten their cigarettes. A good strong, hey! But yeah, I think um, privilege, as it kind of plays out in this film, has to do a lot with um, uh, their own knowledge of what was happening. I think, you know, certainly Julie and Helen had a sense of what happened as soon as they killed someone, uh, even though it was an accident, the kind of ramifications and impact that happens. And I think how privilege plays a part is how they are able to run away from it, not only run away from it in the moment, but also through the rest of the year, even though Helen has not had a great life, but uh, Julie hasn't had the best year, but, you know, they were able to kind of get away from it and to ignore it because if it was like a working class family, they're not seeing these people around, they don't feel like they are interacting with them. They don't feel it. They don't see it. It's not part of their community. It's not part of their daily lives. And I think here's where we start to see Helen as a very sympathetic character. Um, you know, she starts as the beauty queen, the literal beauty queen, um, who has seemingly many things going for her. And now we get to see a bit of her interiority, where we get to see her life. The father, who doesn't 
care or acknowledge her really um, we've already seen the sister who belittles her and who talks down to her um, uh, so sad So now that Helen has kind of lost that luster, that sparkle, she goes unnoticed. And I think um, the feeling that I certainly get from this film is the the feeling like they did not know who David Egan was. They didn't care. They, or they, they you know, there was care, but not enough. And uh, um. So is Helen going to become that person as well? Will people start forgetting her? Will they just not care when something happens to her? Uh, or, you know, who will care when something bad happens? Uh-oh. Don't worry. Don't worry, Helen. That wig is going to come off real soon. So, I, I mean, I don't know if you're particularly shocked by any of this knowledge, um, but uh, the director, Jim Gillespie, has not done a lot else after this. He uh, did a couple films, um, one called Detox, which I've not heard of, and then uh, in 2005, he made um, the film Venom, which is also known as The Reaper. Not seen that or heard of it, but again, it's part of um, uh, the Weinstein Company. Uh, it was, well, it was around the time when uh, they were um, the Weinstein's were selling um, Dimension, and and it was kind of going between them and Disney. And then a billionaire ransom. So, um, which actually kind of surprises me because this is, um, I think, quite a well-made film. Oh. Let her have this, sister. Um, yeah, I actually, I'm always kind of pleasantly surprised whenever I come back to this film. And I, it's, it's well made. It's well shot. It's just kind of goofy enough for it to be fun to watch, uh, but also while still being watchable. And I think that's the balance that um, um, a lot of teen horror can often miss is there still actually has to be good elements to it. Um, but who knows? Maybe he was involved in a scandal. Was he? He's Scottish. Um, yeah, or maybe just something better to do.
and this is, uh, I mean, a part of the film that I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, that the uh, killer, while also kind of threatening them, as he did with Barry, and taking away his ability to uh, be physical and, you know, where his strength was coming from, he's also attempting to take away Helen's beauty by taking away her hair. Um, the ironic thing to me is he just, uh, soon! He gives her, like, she winds up getting a much better hairstyle because of this. Um, oh, God, the tank and cami set. I remember those so well. Um, yeah, she, I just she looks so much better throughout the rest of this film. I mean, she's not wearing like a five-pound wig on the top of her head, um, and it just suits her much more. Also, she looks a lot more like uh, Buffy as we kind of come to know her. Oh no! What's that noise? Oh no! Is it my bucket hat? Is my bucket hat haunted? Right, row. Oh no, there's Max. I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's tricky to remember that uh, she did not have cell phones back then, so. Uh, what is this outfit Helen is wearing? But where did it go? I mean, to be fair, they're in the middle of like a rural area, a uh, residential area, and uh, seemingly the fisherman just came by and was hauling the body out along with the crabs. I mean, spin around, spin. <laughs> You're gonna die. I got a letter. Oh, you got a letter. I got run over. Helen gets her hair chopped off. 
Fisher boy. Whatever, rich boy. I love how that supposed 40-year-old was a high school senior. <laughs> Lying is an option. Bless them. So, Helen, you're going to be bait. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pound his ass. It, it's just um, it, the characterization in this film is not the most subtle, uh, but it is very entertaining. Um, you know, we've got our archetypes here and they're all playing into them. And, you know, it's been done better, but it's also been done a lot worse. But it always makes me chuckle. so concerned. He's frowning so much. So, while these people may be celebrating Independence Day on July 4th, we know that the real celebration is uh, the fisherman's vengeance. Also, why the fuck are they letting Ryan Phillippe sit on that float? See, she looks great here. This is like the best she looks in the whole film. But if I was like, I'm on a float, but also I need my ex-boyfriend in a bulky white sweater in the middle of summer to sit on it, I think some people would have some issues. Oh, they're still sweet on each other. It's been a bit odd. Um, I haven't rewatched Cruel Intentions in probably something like 15 years. Um, and sometimes I feel like I should go back to that just to see these two in action again. But also I feel like all I remember is that movie making me feel like I need a shower. <laughs> hey. Over there. I'm a man! I've got to exact revenge! <sighs> so what is this float? It's a clamshell. There's a little Venus de Milo. Yeah. To be fair, an old man could have done it. This could be ageist in some regards. Um, yeah, I love those. Uh, I love like a, a good float, and sometimes a good float is just a random float. Um, so you've got your clamshell, you've got your your rope, you've got your small children. You know, it all makes sense.
But yes, I, I would anticipate if we ever um, get our way and, and this becomes, Fourth um, of July becomes, uh, and I know what you did last summer holiday, I'd like to personally imagine the fishermen sitting in that clam shell. Also with little children, like, waving and and stuff like that. Um, Basically the exact same float, but just instead of Helen, it's um, the fishermen for exacting working-class revenge upon um, some semi-privileged kids. Um, It's probably a better holiday than the current reason we celebrate, or the current reason Americans celebrate uh, July 4th. We we have Canada Day. Oh! (laughs) <laughs> just come out with a knife. No shit, she remembers you. Okay, uh, another great shot of this float. I love it. Uh, yeah, but as I was saying, um, in Canada, we have Canada Day, which is on July 1st, and it is a... Uh, national holiday, um, whereas, you know, we tend to get a day off. Um, but, y- you know, it's, we have a, Canada has a horrible past uh, in regards to um, treatment of Indigenous communities and, um, you know, Black communities as well. It's, you know, so anything, <laughs> there's the fishermen. Anyway, um, but yeah, I always uh, find the uh, story of Canada because we were also um, a colony under England, um, and uh, uh, I, I always find that story kind of interesting because originally, um, instead of waging a war with England, um, we wrote them a letter and said, "Please, may we not be um, a colony anymore? Can we can we be our own country?" Um, like, this is the white settlers speaking, of course. And and England wrote back, and they were like, "No, stop it." And then we wrote back another letter, and we're like, "May we please?" Um, and they were like, "Ugh, fine." Um, so you know, we didn't wage the war, but we were persistent. Um, and here we are today, and there's a statutory holiday, but um, we. Still, uh, white Canada, a lot of white Canada anyway, still has a certain thing for the uh, royals and the monarch in England. So, um, yeah, this is kind of an interesting scene because, you know, Julie has been saying, you know, is it too late to go to the cops? You know, a lot of conflicting things are being said right now, but what they can and they should do. And to be fair, you know, it's a very complicated situation and all the choices they have made up until this point have made it more complicated. Um, And there we just saw that um, David uh, Egan got a note himself um, from someone who was never forget the accident that he caused being the driver of the car, which killed his girlfriend, Susie. Um, You know, the uh, foursome here in this film were just 
the wrong place, wrong time. Not a big, huge hook. It's, just, it's that white sweater. I just can't. I can't get past it. I just. It's one of those things. Like it's so textured. I can't stop staring at it. Aww. Uh Yes, and this is probably also part of my um, uh, watching this at an impressionable age. I still love that neckline on a dress. The kind of droopy. Um, the droopy neckline. I enjoy it very much. Uh, and I've never found a good one um, for myself, but one day. You know, I'm turning 35 this year. Maybe this is the year. <laughs> I love that they make her sit there. What is this talent? Walking on a stage? Oh, it's karaoke. Uh-oh. I do really enjoy the scene. It, it's kind of a great <laughs> comic beat um, to have in the film. And I think you also, um, as we are want to care about Helen, and the film wants us to care about Helen, she went from being someone who perceived this to be a very important moment to actually having that moment of self-realization, like, holy shit, what the hell was this? And now we're watching Barry uh, being attacked. She's trying to stop everything. Again, Helen is a is a pretty great character. She's she's up there in my um, slasher victim favorites. And I'm not a huge uh, SMG fan, but um, this is this is fun, interesting. Let's hold that hysterical woman more. I mean, frankly, she's just lucky she didn't get put in a sanitarium right away, right? There's no berry up here. I mean, again, this, you know, the police are not the sharpest tools in the shed. Uh, no longer a croaker queen. But yeah, so here we're kind of mirroring the scene where um, Julie confronted Anne Heche, not confronted, but, but went to her and kind of told her that, you know, she was part of 
David's death and and um, uh, Missy refused to believe it. Uh, she couldn't believe it. And now Helen is kind of having her own moment where she's relaying what's happening to a police officer and the police officer isn't helping her. Um, uh-oh. Um, thinking that it is, you know, outlandish and it's silly and, you know, all of those things. Um Again, they've kind of dug their own graves a bit too deep, so to speak. Uh-oh. I love how, like, the police officer has to stop and check if this guy with car troubles okay. But there's a murder and he misses a big pool of dripping blood. Again, defund the police. I mean, I don't think the film is trying to make that point, but I think it's illustrating it, um, even through a bunch of white characters, that, um, yeah, these are not effective people. Oh, oh, this sequence, this sequence, I feel this sequence in my bones. I, I, if you, I don't want to say if you don't feel the sequence in your bones, you're not alive. So I'm not going to say that, but it gets me. (gasps) A local fisherman. Run, Helen, run. This is, like every time I've seen this movie, I've seen this movie so many times, like as a fan, um, when I was going to um, write about it. Um, and, and once again, for this, um, I, I this whole sequence with Helen, I'm constantly like, she can make it. She's gonna make it. Oh no. I wish your sister wasn't such a bitch. Um, I, I always hope she's gonna make it. I, I really am like, oh my God, it's that slow walk. I always, I'm not sure if this, you know, is intentionally calling back to it, but um, it certainly always reminds me a lot of the scene in the original Halloween, uh, Halloween 78, where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in the middle of the street. She's screaming for help and like banging on doors and and people are just like closing their windows and stuff. Um, The openness of it, like the fisherman and like Michael Myers just kind of strolling, you know, at a good pace across the street while you're banging on a door asking for safety is um, quite threatening and and, um, scary. It's scary. It's intimidating. It's, um, yeah, it's a freaky sequence.
Oh no, Elsa. There is no Elsa, only Zool. So that actress, the one who played um, Elsa, as uh, Brigitte, or no, Bridget Wilson. And uh, I believe she's still married to Pete Sampras, the tennis pro. Also, this is kind of like a big fear of mine that I would actually be in a slasher scenario and be wearing like a slinky dress and heels. Because really what we all want is to be in a comfortable like jeans, t-shirt that's not too loose and like good socks and well-laced running shoes or boots, maybe, and depending on the boots. So, uh-oh. I'm going to pretend that's an homage to Black Christmas. Also, another thing um, that this film has that I kind of miss is um, is the score. Like, it's a very big... Well, I mean, not very big, but it's an orchestral score. It, it uh, has a bit of energy to it. And I find sometimes we can get it to, like, synthesizer-y, plink-plonky. Um, and of course, this store here is the kind of pseudo department store that the small town has that her family owns, that Helen's family owns. Um, I mean, I think there's perhaps a nice metaphor to be read in here about um, capitalist work culture destroying and consuming its youth. I've not been the one to make that, but if you feel so moved, I encourage you to go do that. Um, but I, I think the way this film is constantly framing its characters within um, the kind of barriers of what they are brought up within, um, whether it's Barry's privilege, um, Helen's kind of department store, beauty queen, failed life. Oh, go for it. Do it. Oh, she's fighting so hard. Um, you know, these, these characters are doomed in many ways. Oh, here she goes. gonna make it she's gonna make it don't stop yeah 
Yeah, this is, um, I think, a really well done sequence because um, it, it's really, it's showcasing where all the action is within this setup. Um, I think the overhead shot provides a lot of the space awareness of it. Um, you've got the music and the lights that are kind of coming from the parade, also mixed with that score. And there we had Helen die, and she was so close, she was so close, but the fisherman is always one step ahead. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a great sequence in a totally fine, fun film. That one actually stands out to me as something that's quite strong. Uh Ray! No matter who your ex-boyfriend is, if he asks you to come aboard, don't do it. Um, and here we have the conversation about um, did they kill David Egan or did they kill Ben Willis or, you know, quote unquote kill. Oh, Billy Blue, um, a name that was given to Missy. Um <laughs> You know what, Julie? Everyone needs a rebound. It's fine. Um, yeah. So, so here we obviously have the conversation of who did they put in the water that night? Was it uh, David Egan or was it Ben Willis? Uh oh. on the fucking boat I mean it just seems like like on land you can kind of run multiple places it like getting on a boat in the middle of the slasher film is like going up to another floor in a house where a serial killer is but like three steps on top of that oh no he's got hair he's got articles he scrapbooked his wall with your misdeeds, Julie. Oh, and there's a the thing we see from the beginning. So we got uh, the visible scar on his face, and yeah, now Julie kind of knows what's happening. Ah, oh, you should have. I mean, 
It's never a great idea to go back to an ex, but... Oh, Ray, what's, what's he gonna do? <gasps> a boat! A flare gun! Bye-bye. Sweet Susie. Um, so again, the uh, tattoo that they saw when they were going to throw the body in the water said Susie. And um, uh, Julie says to Missy earlier in the film um, that, you know, David had the um, had the tattoo and she says, no, he didn't. So um, here we are. The film is uh, kind of wrapping up and a lot of people were up to misdeeds last summer. One of them just kind of knew a bit more about what was going on. Do you like my hook hand? I think kind of what the ending does here it kind of um, it, it illustrates that uh, Ben Willis here is a vengeful fuck and he's just going to come after anyone and everyone who gets in his way whether they you know accidentally murdered his daughter or accidentally uh, thought they murdered him and attempted to throw his body in the water. And if you want to see how far this vengeance really goes, I highly suggest you go check out um, I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer, which I do have a soft spot for. It's, it's much less watchable than this or even uh, the sequel, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. But um, if you're a completist and uh, you enjoy a so bad it's bad horror movie, I would recommend checking it out. Also, if you like blue tints blue tinted lenses and, and color on the screen it it really comes like that with spades um <laughs> another thing about this film and, and again I, I never grew up in a fishing community I've, i don't think i've ever spent any time on a fishing boat and 99 percent sure i haven't um this one makes the boat seem really big uh i was just watching not that long ago um sea fever a new film that's coming out and um that is also about kind of a, a shipping vessel. And that one is also quite big. So I guess maybe it's the thing. I didn't know this, that fishing boats are, are big and, and have, you know, labyrinthine underbellies. Makes sense. I guess you're out there for weeks at a time. So um, we're all learning is my point. There is some green goo. Is that the same green goo they put in Michael Myers? in Curse of Michael Myers. 
It's probably not. It's a sea thing that, again, I do not know because I didn't spend any time in a fishing boat. And after this pandemic is over, I'm going to rectify that. This is the ice room, obviously. Um, I'm kidding. It's not. Um, <laughs> well, I hope there isn't something scary in the ice. Ah, ice. Ah. And I will say I don't um I'm not a big Jennifer Love Hewitt fan. Oh. Um she, I think she's fine in these films. I think she's totally fine. Um, uh, but she has a great scream. If you're looking for a scream queen, that kind of definition. I think she's got it right here. Oh, and Freddie Prince, he always looks so worried. And he's, a, he's like a, a cookbook author. That's kind of his thing, is, is cooking, which is... Um, Kind of fun. I like that for him. Yeah. Oh. See, it is a <laughs> to stop screaming. It is a good thing that Ray uh, works on the fishing boats and on the dock because he knows how to do all that stuff. And it was the boat that ran him afoul. Oh, bye bye, hand. <laughs> this is a little like Scooby Doo esque, um, and I do appreciate that. Um, but they are not heeding his warning. Make sure that that person is dead. And while losing a hand is going to hurt like a bitch. It's not going to kill you necessarily. And off they drive in sweet Susie and now the sheriffs. They have seemingly called the sheriffs and the police. But well, they have learned their lesson. We were broken up. <laughs> Sorry, the chemistry between these two is um palpable. Oh. oh, you know what? It is always good to center a relationship on trauma and secrets. Do they tell the truth? No. Um, and, and I think that's a very important part in this film is they do not um, 
through uncovering what happened that night, what really happened that night, they've absolved themselves of any wrongdoing. Oh, there's the hand. The body will turn up. No, it won't. Um, and they have seemingly absolved, absolved themselves in their own mind of any wrongdoing, and they feel that they can now move on. Um, however, the kind of initial um, fearsome thing, here we are another year later. Oh, look at her hair. It's all bouncy. Um, she's much better, and she's on the phone with him, with Ray. Um, but they, they haven't, you know come clean about their own part in it and I and I think that's a really intrinsic thing to this story is that um, they are unable to process the original things that have happened and make amends for them um, and still more lies it's secrets and while they've uncovered a lot of things um, they have not kind of released the town secrets and that's uh, what's gonna fucking come back to haunt you it's that return of the repressed like Robin Wood says, it's gonna fucking get you. <gasps> oh no. Not block letters. But yeah, see how much better her hair looks in this? She thinks she's better, but we know she's not. But her hair looks good, and uh, she has a thumb ring now. <sighs> what is it? A pool party! I mean, who's leaving pool party invitations at the uh, girls' locker room? Anyway. Uh-oh. <gasps> I still know. Oh, you can see her bangs getting limper by the second. <laughs> so that's the end um, of this film. Of course, there are the sequels, um, like we talked about. Um, there is a still, oh, this song. Na, 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 na. Um, there's, of course, the uh, sequel, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Na, 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 na. Um, which is also pretty fun, where Julie James and her friends go on a vacation. Um, and then the I'll always know what you did last summer. So um, let us know. Did did you enjoy this? Um, maybe we'll make this a yearly thing for the next couple of years. Um, but I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. Um, or just had an hour, 40 minutes of fun. And you got to listen to me talk through a film. Um, which is something I always try to avoid doing because that bugs me. Um, if you really like this format, uh, do check out the Faculty of Horror Patreon, um, and which we'll link in the show notes to this. Uh, we have a few commentaries on there. We've got Candyman. We've got Death Proof. We just did one on 12 Monkeys, which should probably be up by now. And it's really fun. We pick a theme, and then we ask all our patrons to vote on it, and then we record it. So it's a good time, and there's lots of stuff coming up for there and there's a lot of stuff up on there so you can join us over there but as always um we're so happy that you are joining us on this main feed uh we love doing this and oh, there is a marine coordinator captain jeff johnson nicely done jeff johnson um 
Uh, but yeah, was, this was a lot of fun. And um, thank you so much for uh, supporting the podcast um, as you do by listening and uh, keeping us going because we love doing this. And um, yeah, we hope you are staying well. Um, we hope you are fighting the good fights that need to be fought uh, in an appropriate way, uh, in a safe way. And yeah, we will, I guess we'll, we'll be seeing you soon because we still know. We still, we still know that you listen to the Faculty of Horror. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we hope you have a great summer. And let us know if you enjoyed this. Bye, guys.